Today's episode of Data Knots is brought to you by Live Action. On Thursday, October 26th at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, join me, Ethan Banks, and Live Action CTO John Smith as we demo Live Action's real-time network visualization and topology maps for complete situational awareness. Register today at www.liveaction.com slash go slash WAN. Are you still hosting your own email? Is it on Microsoft Exchange? Are you maybe a little sick of that? What if you could outsource some of those pesky infrastructure problems to the cloud? Well, of course, you can. Microsoft Office 365 would love to help you with that problem. So catch a ride on board the mail migration rocket on this episode of the Data Knots podcast. Packetpushers.net, you can find this in all of our Datanaut shows about infrastructure engineering, or just search for Datanauts spelled like astronauts in your favorite podcatcher. You can follow us at Datanauts underscore show. I am Ethan Banks at EC Banks, and with me is the exuberant Chris Wall at Chris Wall, whose mail archive is so big that migrating to any destination means someone is buying more storage. Our guest today is Teresa Miller. Teresa, welcome to Datanauts, and please introduce yourself to the audience. Thank you for having me on the show today. I'm really excited. I am the founder of 24 by 7 IT Connection. I am both a analyst and writer as well as do some IT consulting. So we have services available for anyone who might be interested. And you went skydiving over Vegas last year? I did. It was so much fun. Was this at daytime or at night? This was during the day. Okay. I was at another conference and I had nothing planned one of the mornings. So I left it that way, and I scheduled, <laughs> I scheduled a skydive. I went with nobody I knew, but there was a group of people there. And I guess only 1% of people go by themselves. This, this is was a literally tandem. skydiving. This is literally you're in a helmet and a jumpsuit and a parachute on your back, and you step out of a perfectly good airplane and plummet towards the ground. Yeah, completely illogical. Yeah. But a blast. But with an instructor that you were tied Tandem. closely to? Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. I think you could draw parallels to IT. We sometimes just jump out of a plane that's totally illogical for no reason. <laughs> it could be learning, you know, fun, mm. I suppose. When you push code in production during the day, right. it's basically the same thing. Right. <laughs> well, Teresa, our topic today is migrating from Microsoft Exchange, hosted on-premises, to Office 365, something that you and I, uh, we met at an event and started talking about that, and it sounded like a really good topic for data knots, so... Let's build the case for migrating. Why, why would I do this? So let's start with business reasons. What are the business reasons that an organization would consider to migrate from my exchange server and, and servers that I know and love and then move to SaaS? Why would I do that? It is very similar to all the cloud conversations we're having today, right? It's about whether or not we want to be in the business of maintaining infrastructure, for one. And a lot of organizations are definitely moving away from that. But also when it comes to security and being able to maintain like your Windows patches and your Exchange updates, Microsoft is doing all of that in the background. So when it comes to an operational perspective on site, a lot of companies are looking to use their resources in other ways. Why, why do that anymore? So those are some of the cases that I'm seeing. Well, in other words, it's, it's the standard cloud argument. I don't want to keep maintaining this stuff. Just make it easy. The problem I have is people need to send and receive email and be able to find their messages. I don't want to have to have a bunch of back-end stuff 
that I got maintained to do that, software that I got to deal with, Microsoft licensing. I'm going to guess licensing doesn't entirely go away, but still, it's got to be easier in the Office 365 model. I don't know if licensing is ever easy. (laughs) Yeah, right. But that being said, when you remove the infrastructure piece, the component to that, and you're, like I said, you're having somebody else do your updates, I think it does change the landscape of what your internal IT staff is able to do. It allows them to, to work on different things. And that's a good thing. It really is. You keep hearing that businesses are trying to run leaner IT. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. And it does promote that case. Yeah, and e- email was like one of the first more obvious cases for SaaS, especially if you have a distributed workforce, maybe having everything tie back to HQ, although email doesn't take a ton of bandwidth and whatnot, but just having a distributed, you know, non-headache type workload makes sense. Although if you look at it the other way around, I guess you could ask the reverse question, why do so many folks, or at least some folks, still have their own email systems? Well, I don't know if you ever heard this rumor, email's not dead, like, People have been trying to get rid of email forever. And we just use Slack now and WhatsApp. I never email anything. No, I hate those apps in a lot of different ways, so no, I agree with you. Yeah, you and I yeah. are the opposite of the way. I yeah. love Slack. Yeah. You are not a fan. <laughs> not yeah. a fan at all. I mean, I, I, I can handle it, but yeah. For me, I agree with you because email is something that's actionable. I can flag it. I can organize it. I feel like I can put my hands around it, whereas all the other messaging platforms you talk about, great for ephemeral kind of I want to just have a discussion but I don't, feel, I, I don't feel like I can search and organize it as well as email. So I, I'll, I'll agree with you, even though Ethan is that millennial, you know, coffee-drinking hipster that loves Slack. <laughs> I more, am 10 more, years older than you, my friend. Yeah. I, I don't know. Reverse millennial. Remember <laughs> <laughs> that you're found a youth. I don't a, know. A reverse millennial. Yeah. <laughs> I like this. <laughs> so, okay, so email's not dead. But, I mean, still, there's still the infrastructure argument. I still have to deal with all that. So, so when am I keeping my email in-house? Like I said, it's not dead organizations are going to keep using it no matter what. They need it to do business day in and day out. So in terms of, you know, why they keep them, I think also when you're, when you're making the argument between Office 365 and on-prem exchange, you know you're keeping email, right? You want it in one place or the other. Some industries are not ready from a security and compliance ah, perspective okay. yep. to move. Yeah. They just won't. Fair enough. Interesting. Um, I know somebody that's in healthcare, and I've spent a lot of time doing healthcare IT. Their organization is still like, no way, we're not going cloud. We're not going to do Office 365. But one of the companies that I used to work with or work at, they're just about on board. And I think it comes down to what types of information you're putting in those emails. If there's private information in those emails, then you are not going to want that in the cloud. So if if PHI is involved, it's probably not going to happen. You're going to stay on-prem. So it's more of the compliance headache and that jazz, not necessarily a pure tech decision under the covers. Right. That makes sense. All right. So if I am an Exchange user, is Google Apps for Business a migration path? I mean, would I even consider that? Or is like Office 365 like just the obvious slam dunk? I would only go towards Office 365. So with my background being an Exchange, I have, with the Microsoft <laughs> platform, I ha- that's where I live and breathe. And, and that's where most of my requests and conversations revolve around. But this is actually the second time this has come up for me in the last two weeks, literally, like this whole Google Apps question. You know, is there a migration platform, or not necessarily a platform, but a strategy to move from Exchange over to Google? 
And so it got me looking into it a little bit further because I personally haven't done it. Yeah. And there, there is. Google has a documented strategy to be able to move to their platform. And so, again, I haven't done it, but it, it exists. Yeah. And, and somebody must be doing it. Yeah, I was at a startup-y kind of channel partner. So we had 70 people. That migration's like whatever, right? We went from on-prem exchange where no one was really managing it to Google Apps way back in the day. And I'll say even today, you know, Ethan and I, I think we both use Google, the app suite for our mail and calendar and whatnot. The calendar is not nearly as good. I I hear that as a common complaint, especially in sales-driven organizations where you're trying to include external resources to to offer calendar resources to. So I, I know there's feature parity gaps that are there, but I also think at the same time the Google app suite is very attractive when you're small and you don't have that long tail. You know, you're basically just looking for a messaging platform. You don't have any IT, whereas everywhere else I've ever worked that was quote-unquote large, medium, whatever you want to call it, that had a substantial amount of IT and resources, we all you know, lived on the iron throne of exchange in some way, shape, or form. Which as we kind of think about, okay, if it's not necessarily a question of Google versus Exchange, whatever, if you're already in that trench looking to Office 365, what is the value proposition that you have to bring to the table in order to get that project off the ground? In my opinion, it comes down to the the business being ready. So let's say you've overcome the fact that, you know, security is not not a big deal. You're not putting PHI out there. We didn't talk about uptime. I think some people stay back, you know, for uptime for reasons. the cloud never goes down. Oh, 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 okay. <laughs> it's I don't know which world you live in. <laughs> uh. You know, I think that companies are moving away from the infrastructure. It's going to go back to the infrastructure. And I think if the business is ready for cloud and you, those other factors are not a concern or you have ways to work around them. So for example, like in the Office 365 and the Exchange platform, there's data loss prevention. And data loss prevention has come a long way since the early days. Data loss prevention is really, you know, I'm in this industry. I need Sarbanes-Oxley. I need... Was it Graham, Leach, Wiley, those type of... All these random people's names who invented stuff, yeah. I know. Well, you can. there's templates for all of them. So if you're really, really concerned about data, you know, you can lock those things down. But that being said, you can get off the ground, you can get moving, and you can get a, a project started. Did we get anything we didn't have before? So like if I had an exchange server in-house and now I've moved to Office 365... Did I win a prize? Did I get some more functionality? You win Maybe the prize. Uh, how I do my remote access? Maybe security's improved? Anything like that that's worth mentioning? Um, well, I think you still get all of those same same features, but Microsoft does leave little breadcrumbs and cookies out in the cloud. You know, they they oftentimes introduce new features there first. There are some features that are in cloud that will never go to on prem ever. Um, things like clutter. Clutter is supposed to be helpful. I don't know if you use Office 365. I do. And clutter is like another form of a junk mail folder. It tries to predictively tell you what you may or may not want to look at. In my case, it would just get rid of everything because I I don't... It's all clutter. <laughs> it's all rim shots here, about folks. You know, just joke after joke. Yeah. But you also have things like Office 365 groups, and so there are there are other features and functionalities out in the cloud that you wouldn't get on prem. Now, if you never had those things and you don't need another level of glorified junk mail, then you're probably okay. There may or may not be a compelling reason to move. Mm. Don't base it just on features. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. 
Fair enough. Yeah, checkbox wars never seem to be the best way to go. I want to pick apart the migrating word that we've used. We keep saying we're migrating to Office 365. The implication there is that we're moving data, you know, the mailboxes, the content, et cetera, to Office 365. You know, we're not just standing up shell accounts and, you know, telling people to start over from scratch. All right, so if, that, if we take that, you know, as the case here, what are the implications around actually migrating that data and handling security and are we having to stand up two different environments for a period of time to move people off of it? You know, kind of describe that process a little bit. Yeah, so there are a few different approaches to migrating your data. To me, it's the only option to move forward with is the hybrid. And so the hybrid migration simulates what you would have done if you were doing an on-prem to on-prem. Hybrid allows you to do on-prem to cloud. And so you now have, you do, you have two environments, right? One's on, on site, one is in the cloud, and it allows that movement forward, right? I can go ahead, I can test things out, I can do a POC, but if I don't like it, or if something isn't quite right, or if there's a use case that's not cloud for my organization, I can even bail back. I can roll back. I have the flexibility that I would have in an on-prem to on-prem, but now it's between on-prem and cloud. So hybrid, to me, like I said, the only way to do this. So you're describing a permanent period of coexistence then? You can. Yeah. You can, and some companies do choose to leave their hybrid deployments in place. Organizations might have actually moved all of their mailboxes to the cloud. And, and by moved, we're talking, here's a mailbox that lives in Exchange, picking that up and, and literally through whatever Copying the tool the mail is, and, yep. moving that, that little mail database all the way up so that user's inbox is now sitting up in the cloud. Correct. Yeah, okay. But sometimes there's reasons to keep them around. Um, once in a while, I've found that companies that use Exchange Relays, so relays are about internal mail routing, like it might allow an internal server to send mail directly through Exchange without having an Outlook client, for example. And once in a while, you get a really old legacy app that doesn't quite do it in the modern SMTP format, and so then... You might have to leave some relays around, for example. But also, companies that do their due diligence definitely want that failback option for some period of time. It's your backout plan. Do you? I, I'm going to keep my local mail infrastructure here just in case. It's my backout plan. Yeah. Well, I mean, other than what the operational costs and ping power pipe, it's not really costing you. You've already spent the money on the infrastructure, right? So why just you know light it on fire? Within a month or two, maybe let it sit down for six months or, or a year or something. Yep. Just as your as your as your parachute, as a as a tandem parachute jumper, you know about that. Right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. One other comment on that though, organizations that choose to keep that coexistence around, let's say for a year, which I would strongly recommend, you do have to keep up with the Microsoft patches on that on prem infrastructure. Right. To maintain your connectivity, we'll get into some of those, the connectivity options that exist with the hybrid, but in order for those to continue to function correctly, they need to be up to date. Because Office 365 is going to be up to date automatically, so you yourself now are obligated to keep up to date to keep those two environments connected properly. Correct. Got it. Okay. 
Okay, so another driver here might be cost. It might not just be simply the overhead and the pain in the butt it is to maintain your own infrastructure. You might be going, maybe I can save money if I move up to Office 365 for my mail. Is there a way I could do an ROI? Is there a cost-benefit analysis? Maybe a tool that I could help me figure that out? Sure. I am personally not familiar with any tools, but to me... It comes down to doing your own analysis of what have you paid, for example, what does it cost you to maintain that on-site infrastructure, the storage, the hardware, tie in some operational costs if you can, and then work with Microsoft to figure out what it's going to cost you to exist in the cloud. Cloud is not always cheaper. Yeah. Right? And, And I think that you'll find that it may not be cheaper, but again... Who do you who do you want to do the updates, right? Where where do you want to maintain those costs? There's a business benefit that goes outside of simply some bottom line dollar. You you can you know doing things the cheapest way isn't always the best way for the business. You may spend more in the cloud in this case, but you reap the benefits of not having to maintain that infrastructure, which can be a really big deal, particularly if you're short staffed in your IT. Exactly. And and the way security security's in the news constantly. There's always a hack or a breach or data that was leaked. And and I'm not saying that that can't happen in the cloud, but when you think about what Microsoft is doing and making sure everything is maintained and updated and, and they are following the security guidelines that every organization wants to be but may not be able to keep up with, yep. you gain a, a huge benefit there. So my takeaway was I, I didn't know that there was a process to migrate but maintain a hybrid model. And I liked it because as a former Exchange admin, I liked how distributed the application stack was for Exchange, you know, your transport servers and mailbox servers and whatnot. And I liked that you could kind of spread it as wide or as narrow as it needed to be. And in that same vein, I like that as you move to a different deployment, you still have a way to, to get back because... Man, people say mail's not important, but when it's down, everybody knows. When it's up, everyone's happy, but like when it's down, everyone's got your butt you know, on fire. So it's good to have a, a way to protect that as you move to something like Office 365. Ethan, what's on your mind? So I am at VMworld right now. We're actually recording this in a VMworld little podcast booth here, which is why you might hear some background noise. I tweeted yesterday that... The argument public cloud is cheaper and that's a reason why you should move, which seems to be a thing that people think about or assume isn't always the case. So as we were concluding the section, you know, it came up that it may not be cheaper just to run everything on Office 365, but that isn't the only reason why you would move to cloud. There's a lot of other compelling business reasons why you may, but don't be surprised if it does end up costing, you know, on parity or more than what you're paying for on-premises services. It's a variable to consider. Assuming it's cheaper is a mistake, whether it's a SaaS offering like this, Office 365, or infrastructure as a service, or whatever it is that you're consuming. Assuming cloud is cheaper is a mistake. Okay, listeners, we're taking a break from our show to discuss today's sponsor, Live Action. Live Action wants you to turn SD-WAN disruption into business transformation with machine learning insights. Lots of marketing buzzwords there, so what are we really getting at? Think of it this way. If you adopt SD-WAN, one of the reasons you do so is probably a cost benefit. You get a return on investment because you can use more than one WAN provider, sometimes internet circuits. Use them all in an agnostic way because you've got an SD-WAN overlay. 
However, there's some complexity that's abstracted away underneath. So how do you deal with issues that crop up when you've been removed a step from the physical circuits and control plane schemes that you are familiar with? That's the point of the live action webinar on Thursday, October 26th at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. I, Ethan Banks, am joining John Smith, live action CTO, to discuss best practices to reduce the complexity of adopting SD-WAN, to govern service assurance using network insights that allow you to be proactive because you got to enforce those SLAs, so it's nice to know when things are going bad before it gets serious, and to make sure that your application is working over the WAN the way you said it would when you recommended this whole SD-WAN install to the company to begin with. John and I are going to go through some SD-WAN market feedback that LiveAction has gathered and then some use cases for their technology. And then finally, we're going to demo the LiveAction platform. And when we do so, we are going to focus on three key features. One, we are going to look at real-time network visualization and topology maps for complete situational awareness. This is the main part of their interface, the one I've seen the most and which I've always liked. Two, We're going to look at continuous machine learning from customer data to provide real-time human-in-the-loop insights for better service management. And I've talked to them about the machine learning claim, and I believe it's legit. What they're doing with this data is very interesting. And then three, we're going to look at dashboards, reports, and systems integration for service assurance governance, how you know those SLAs are being enforced. And uh, anyway, hope you're there at the event. It should be a good time. I have admired the live action interface for quite a while now, and I do love nerding out with CTO types who are passionate about their product. If you want to be there, great. you got to register. So register today at www.liveaction.com slash go slash WAN. And while you're there, you can prep for the event by visiting Live Action's Live NX Insight product page. That's where you can find all the information about the product we're going to be demoing. And then you can read their blog, Three Challenges to Consider as You Approach SD-WAN Monitoring. One more time, register using www.liveaction.com slash go slash WAN. And I hope to see you there. All right, so I think we've really scratched the surface as to kind of some of the value prop behind Office 365, some of the caveats at a high level around migration. Let's actually dig deeper into the whole migration process because even though there's a backup plan, I'm sure there's lots of little pit holes you can find uh, with any service you try to move. So let's talk about it's day one. I'm looking to you know start planning this process. You know, what does the evaluation look like? What should I be discovering? You know, kind of what's the activities look like as I begin this journey? So what you're going to need to take a look at, the list actually is, there's a lot to think about. (laughs) Yeah. So make sure you have a really good understanding of your existing exchange environment, of course. If you're using relays, make sure you have them documented, you know where they live. A lot of the time, relays are a DNS name that are buried in applications throughout the organization. And so tracking them down can be a challenge, but you can work with like networking teams to figure out what's coming back to the exchange server. So let's say you have an Oracle application or you have SAP or even, even SQL as those are some of the common ones that I've seen, like where there's maybe some monitoring going on and they might be using a relay back to exchange you can tell, at least your network team can help you track down, well, that server's talking to my exchange server directly in a different way than my traditional mail traffic would be. So then you go to the DBA and go, why is a SQL box talking to exchange? Exactly. It is. It is. And it happens every hour, and you know, and then they can go and figure out what's going on. Got yep. it. Well, okay. And for those that aren't too familiar with relays, I mean, the way I understood it was it's kind of a whitelist of hosts that are allowed to just kind of brute force send data through the email server. You're not necessarily checking because it's an internal address or a known good address. Is that basically 
what is your kind of relaxing security because it's an internal monitoring or security type. It's just sending data on somebody's behalf. You're letting someone send email internally yeah. without an Outlook client. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think you summed it up pretty well. Kind of pass and go Not and every organization is a fan of that, but I have walked into way too many that, that do it anyways. Now, if those relays are sending stuff outside the organization, that's a whole other conversation <laughs> that I would never advocate for. But internally, there's to me, there's no reason that that SQL server can't send an email through Exchange. It's it's internal traffic only. And wouldn't that typically be an SMTP relay? Correct. Pretty straightforward? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So that's one of the things to really have wrapped your arms around because relays can be a project in themselves if there wasn't good documentation around how that list grew and what they are. So make sure you have your arms wrapped around that. The other thing that's worth researching and spending time on are groups because not all group types migrate in a simple way to Office 365. So I'm going to date my exchange knowledge here, but groups were often used as distribution lists and then groups could be used for uh, security where you could access someone else's mailbox. Are these the kind of groups we're talking about? Are there other kind of groups too? Yeah, um, a little bit of both. So distribution groups, regular security groups, those are fine. Those are going to migrate without any issues in a hybrid model. But what we sometimes get are mail-enabled security groups. And I have seen them used in organizations. Those you can migrate, but they're not mail-enabled on the other side, for example. And then... So the other type of group that actually doesn't migrate well at all is the dynamic distribution list. It's based on LDAP queries, based on a you know particular. Let's say, let's say I am an organization that has multiple locations, and I want to be able to put together an email for a list of people that are all in Wisconsin. I could go based off of a location field for Wisconsin or state field of Wisconsin. However, we decided to fill that in. And that query would then propagate what my distribution list looks like. Those will not migrate. So you have some planning to do when you're moving to Office 365. Which is funny. This sounds like, like, like little tedious details, but they're actually a really big deal because of the way people are used to working, finding people, communicating with people. If you begin to take those addresses away from them and they don't work anymore, people are going to be upset. Correct. Because if my distribution list is gone when my mailbox is migrated... I'm not going to be happy. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so we're still talking about day one of evaluation discovery. We're talking about relays. We're talking about these various group types. Are there any other things that we need to be doing our homework on? I think it's good to know how much data you have. You know, are you archiving? Do you have public folders? So we can get into those as, as deep or as shallow as you'd like. So let's say let's talk about public folders because public sure. folders are another one of those things that everybody's been trying to get are, rid of. Are they, are they evil? They are. Okay. Um, Tony Tony Redman calls them the cockroaches of exchange. <laughs> He's right. They are. Well, it was kind of like a news group function, and you know, some organizations really bought big into them, and others didn't. Seem like, in my experience, users love them. Yeah. Users love public folders. Exchange admins do not because the original technology that they were built on makes them very hard to recover, and there wasn't a lot of good redundancy. You could do replicas, but you couldn't fail over. You had to 
it was cut over. There, there's just a lot from a management perspective that's very painful. Now, in the newer versions of Exchange, they have modern public folders. They're more like mailboxes that the public folders live in, so they've got the mailbox features that people like, so they've, they've become a little bit better. But if you're dealing with public folders in general, you're going to have some pain points when you migrate to Office 365. For example, from a migration perspective, they either live on-prem or they live in the cloud. It's the whole batch either has to be on-prem or in you the cloud. It's, a, it's yeah. not a nice, pretty migration. It's a cutover. And so what a lot of people end up doing with their public folders is looking and researching, looking at and researching public folder, third-party third public folder options. Mm, okay. So make it someone else's problem? That's basically the solution? Well, you buy the product, you buy somebody <laughs> else's tool yeah. to help migrate them, and then set expectations, I think, with your bu- the business that there's going to be some or interruption you kill the cockroaches, of service. You're like, Public folders are out. Because I, I remember like a long time ago when I was on the customer side doing exchange administration, I, it was one of the first things I did was killed off public folders because I read everything I read was like, these are horrible, you got to get rid of them. And I was just kind of the, the BOFH who told everybody <laughs> that's happening. <laughs> well, I'm impressed that you were able to get rid of them. There was this whole theory that SharePoint was going to help eliminate public folders. <laughs> Negative. And anywhere, I know, anywhere I ever worked, that never happened either. So oh, it's, yeah. So it could be a challenge. What, what about locally stored mailbox? Now I'm going to date myself a little bit, but it used to be really trendy. Some people really just wanted to have that work on their mailbox that was local, not the server-based mailbox. Is that even a thing anymore, Exchange, where you have to worry about that? Are you talking about PST files? Yeah, those, those PST files. Oh, that is, that is another pain point to migration. PSTs, PSTs are a pain point whether you're moving to Office 365 or, or not. not. Because now you have corporate data in a file stored somewhere. Well, that's why I was asking if they were still a thing because it was because all those concerns were true back when I was an exchange admin as a younger man. Yeah, I think I think organizations tried to move away from them. Some still have them. Microsoft did put into some of their more recent and more recent I mean like in the last 5 years, but into their products the ability to do like an archive that is then stored on the exchange server so it's similar to a pst but now the data is on the exchange server server. you know where it lives you can apply controls to it and yeah 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 yeah. and so more and more organizations move to that but definitely a search and discovery effort needs to happen on pst files to make sure that those you just reminded me of every mail migration I've ever done when it went through this. It was, it was a difficult thing. All right. Um, when am I ready to build the Office 365 environment? I mean, I, I'm imagining I've got to say, okay, we're going we're gonna to do this. We've done our discovery. You've got to now have an environment. You've got to have a place to move to. So do you, you know, you, you're opening an account or you know, setting up mailboxes, et cetera? Yeah, so you're going to set up your Office 365 subscription. You're going to have worked with Microsoft. Make sure you have all the licenses you need. Make sure your subscription has all the features that you're looking for. But when you're ready, there's two components that you're going to want to install to kind of create that connectivity. We've talked about connectivity a little bit. And 
basically allow that data to be moved because Microsoft will know, they'll have the space for you. They'll have the storage up in the cloud already for you. It's the migration process that builds those mailboxes and does the moves and things like that. So the first piece that you need on-prem, on your Active Directory environment, is the Azure Active Directory sync. And that's going to take your Active Directory and essentially make a copy of it to your Azure tenant for Office 365. Because you've got to have that. That's the backbone, essentially, for you, you really a do. lot if, of services. If you want any form of seamless experience for the users, yep. you are going to want that. Some companies don't make that connection, but then that means their users are logging in to their Office 365 separate. It's not the same ID. It's not the same password. It's totally separate. Blah. That's very unusual, though. Yeah, okay. So the Azure Active Directory sync will make sure that 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 copy process is happening. And Microsoft has made many strides to make sure that 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 copy process, that synchronization is encrypted in a way that no data can actually be stolen. Initially, there were some concerns. They weren't hashing the, the passwords enough, for example, but now they hash them multiple times and there's encryption. And so it's pretty solid. The other piece that creates all of that connectivity is the hybrid configuration wizard. And the hybrid configuration wizard will help kind of create that, well, it creates that hybrid. It's what allows the transport to be able to send mail back and forth between yeah. cloud. These it's, two environments are going to know yeah, about each other now. These two environments are going to talk. It's about... OWA, making sure that if you want OWA on-prem addressing to match what you're using in the cloud, you can do those types of things. If you're going to use TLS encryption for message transport, which is very common today, you encrypt your mail through TLS, you can do your certificates through that. So that hybrid configuration wizard helps you complete that process. So then you now have this this mode of being able to start thinking about migrating your data and testing it. It's almost like adding another exchange server on-premises. It is. It's almost like adding another exchange server, but it's your upgrade, right? Yeah. It's your new version of exchange. OWA is still Outlook Web Access, right? Just to... Outlook Web App. Web, web App. Okay, man, oh I'm dating boy. myself. They have updated. Okay. Yeah, I just want to demystify all the acronyms and initialisms <laughs> uh, that are there. There's actually one other thing I'd like to add to that that I think is a step that sometimes isn't thought about. Microsoft has a really great document out there called the Exchange Online Protection IP Addresses. You're going to have to make sure your firewalls between on-prem, well, it's more on-prem, are open to what you need open in the cloud to be able for you know all these processes to complete. Is there a whole long list of ports? It's it's decent enough that I don't have it memorized. <laughs> wow. So, okay. Like I said, and it's in a, it's IP ranges as well. Uh, yeah. Well, Ethan doesn't have anything to worry about. He just has star star any any. Allow, yeah, that's right. That's right. IP so, any any yeah. permit. It's all good. You don't even have a so firewall. So it's really do you? You secure. Right into the internet. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, that's that's good advice because I can see that being really frustrating, especially if you had to like kind of sniff out the ports and whatnot. So yeah, uh, that's good to document. Now, let's say that you stamped out the landing pad or the foundational infrastructure in Office 365. Everything's talking and buzzing and happy. It's now time to, let's move some stuff, right? So the mailboxes need to get moved. What does that look like? Are you doing one at a time, groups, the whole thing? Like, kind of how do you decide the scope of it? And what's the actual kind of effort look like? 
So in terms of approach, it really comes down to the culture and mailbox sizes. You know, what is, what is the organization going to tolerate? But one of, the, one of the pieces outside of that that I strongly recommend is oftentimes like C-levels or executive level staff have assistants that are delegates of their mailboxes. It's always been a, a really nice practice and recommendation to move, move them together because without that, they're actually even on-prem to on-prem, there can be actually issues with the calendar or free busy components. And so I definitely recommend doing that. Now, how big you batch them, it really it's going to come down to the mailbox sizes, but also your network bandwidth. Sure. You're, you're going from on-prem to the cloud. And so what's that going to look like? So in the end, it's a, it's a POC to start with because you probably don't even know that answer. Should you move your executive ones first? For your POC? If you <laughs> do not <laughs> want yeah. to be employed. Okay. Right. <laughs> Sorry, boss. I uh, lost all your mail. But now we know we don't like this, so we won't use it. So, <laughs> so, so, then, so now there's an impact question. I'm going through this mailbox migration process. I'm either doing one at a time. I'm batching, whatever. I'm in the groove, and we're working through this thing. It probably takes weeks or months, potentially, depending on the size of the organization, size of the, organization the amount of the data. Size of mailboxes, absolutely. Okay, all of that stuff. So, okay, I'm a user, and I've been told, hey, my mailbox is moving, or, or, or am I told? Is it so seamless that I never know the difference, or is there a time that I don't have access to my mailbox, maybe? or In theory, it should be seamless. However, I personally always recommend communicating, because especially on-prem to cloud, there's a there's an area where you you don't have control. What if what if your network service provider has an outage you weren't anticipating? That could affect your migration. So I'm a huge advocate for communication even if I don't anticipate any form of interruption of service. So in theory, it but should be able... even if my mailbox is in transit, it's like in flight. It's, it's going from the exchange server up to the cloud. Absolutely. I can still, as with my mail client, access my mail and do, the, do all my normal stuff. Yep, yep. And okay. it's that way in the on-prem versions. That really? The, because it, I, it I, I would assume... It used to not be that way. Well, I, I would assume that like uh, the, you know, the DNS name that I would, that my client would know about to find my mailbox would maybe change. So auto discover is a component that you're going to set up. It's and I didn't mention it. It's two, there's two pieces to it. It is part of the hybrid configuration wizard, but you also have to set up your your auto discover addressing DNS correctly. So okay. that is set up in so advance. If, if, if auto you do discover. your records right in the auto discover process, mm-hmm. then again in, in theory, theory it should go. Yeah, and that's that's auto discover is putting stuff in the Active Directory. Database too, right? Correct. It does so make some changes to Active Directory. It creates a, a, an awareness that allows that to be successful. Now, you know, if something's not quite right, sometimes mailbox profiles have to be recreated and, and things like that. Another reason to communicate because there could just be something about your migration that, or you is can a force someone to inbox different. zero and they won't know it. Yes. <laughs> now, there's a bunch of different clients that could be used to access your mailbox. The full-blown Outlook client, which I suppose is, is the most common one. Uh, there's Correct. also web and whatever the other methods are. Okay. Are there any client-specific concerns if I'm migrating from Exchange to Office 365? So from a mobile perspective, if you are using 
the built-in client. I know at least on an iPhone, as long as the OWA addressing doesn't change, the Outlook web app stuff and its subcomponents, it should, in theory, all work. Now, again, everyone's environment's different. If you choose to use different addressing for some of those components, then you may have to plan for some form of outage. So this is an it depends answer on the mobile piece. There could be interruption on that. If you choose to use different names for the Outlook web app, then there is communication required too, because the users are going to have to go to a different OWA address. (laughs) It's that due diligence. Yep. And it sounds like some of this due diligence you're going to know from having done a migration once, been bitten in the backside yeah. a few times. Yeah. It's like, ah, No, you okay. hire Teresa, and she tells you about all these problems. That's what I'm hearing. Ta-da. Yeah, hire Teresa. <laughs> yeah. All right, so I guess kind of a capstone question here, talking about migration. What would be the number one most common issue that you have seen or experienced when you're making mailbox-level migrations? I think there's two different areas where things may not go well. One is if the hybrid configuration wizard steps have not completed correctly. And that comes down to the many different things we talked about, like your TLS cert, your auto discover, your DNS entries, your Outlook web app addressing. If something's not quite right there, you might be working through that hybrid configuration wizard a few different times. Because all of the things you just said, if you have a cert problem, that's a breaking problem. If you have a DNS lookup issue that, or you know, host name problem, that's a breaking issue. You're not going to be able to find resources. You're not going to be able to encrypt. These are things that are going to stop traffic. Right. So, And also the hybrid configuration wizard also is your transport, like your mail transport and things like that. So if that's not all in order, it's going to take you a few times to get through the, the wizard. Usually once you get through that, you know, in terms of issues, it's going to be little things here and there like the mailbox profile might need to be reset, making sure the delegate stuff is working correctly. It's more of the Outlook-based type. Things that the help desk, you know, triage kind of folks are most likely going to be addressing. I mean, should they be fearful after a big mailbox migration or? Well, (laughs) that's a loaded question. (laughs) Like any mailbox <laughs> migration or mail, mailbox upgrade, I should say, they need to be well informed and in the loop. And honestly, I think that the hand that did the work, so if it's me or somebody else, needs to be involved needs in making sure yeah. that they're troubleshooting it, but also fixing it in a way that makes sense. Because I've, you know, in my early days with Exchange, that level of involvement, and that could have been cultural too, right, where I was working, didn't quite exist the way it needed to. And then so the help desk is fixing something with a workaround they think is resolving the issue, but in the end, there was a back-end change that could have been made to resolve it, something that maybe wasn't foreseen. You know, they made 20 changes to fix 20 users, Well, in, when in the end there was one maybe exchange-related change that could have been made that would have fixed everybody. Another thing that stuck out to me the most that I was not expecting was the possibility of a seamless migration where it is, in theory, as Teresa said, with that caveat, in theory, if everything is uh, set up properly, your user can continue using their mailbox while their mailbox is moving, and that's okay. And that I did not expect as a possibility. So, hey, maybe sometimes things do get better in IT. 
Yeah, well, I, maybe it was just you broke a lot of exchange environments, Ethan. I, that maybe is true. <laughs> I don't know. I, I'll just say the, the takeaway that was actually your question about PST files and that kind of jazz just reminds me that the long tail of IT never quite yeah. dies. You know, it, the dinosaurs eventually turned into oil. In this case, <laughs> the old mailboxes can sometimes turn into PSTs. So just be remindful of the fact that things that are ancient can still be lurking around. Don't look for the stuff that's just five years old or ten years old. Sometimes you might go back a little bit further and that's where having an expert that's gone through a number of these processes can really understand the stuff that's just kind of like, if you're a newer exchange admin, you probably never even heard of some of this stuff. So you might have to dig deep to find some of the caveats. So, Teresa, I want to close up the show just talking about the final environment, when I'm all done, the migration, and what things look like, because there was this idea of coexistence that, you know, in my mind, it was like, well, we're going to go from Exchange to Office 365, and now my Exchange is all done. Goodbye. And you're like, not really. So, okay, so I've got some coexistence stuff going on for, for some reasons that we've already talked about. So some pointed questions about that coexisting environment and what that looks like. For one thing, if I'm the mail administrator, now I've got the exchange environment I'm familiar with, and now I've added Office 365, are my admin tools different? Is my world different trying to take care of this environment? Your world is different, and you are going to, if you're you're moved up to Office 365 Exchange Online, you're working in those admin tools. Now, I've found that they're very intuitive. I personally have not had any issues with that learning curve, but there will be. There will be some. I was wondering if maybe the admin tools would be the same because uh, I guess my understanding of Office 365 is it's actually Exchange on the back end. So in theory, you could use the same admin tools, but you're saying no, no in fact. Yeah, it's it's slightly different. And, and some of that really is just how you get there, right? Yeah. Um, from you know how you navigate the, the tool set Logging into Office 365, going into admin, making sure you have the rights. You know, we didn't even talk about rights. Not everybody has access to the Exchange like you Online fight admin for your tools right to send mail. Oh no, not that one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, sure, no, that's sure. So, another question about coexistence. Then, in your experience, since you've done a bunch of these, is it typical to have this coexistence environment, or in fact, are some of these shops? fully migrated to Office 365 and they shut the exchange server down and there's a party that day. Well, everyone would love to have a party. You know, I don't recommend shutting it down that next day. So, you know, any migration I've been part of, there's a conversation around keeping it. To me, having that fail back even beyond the migration, even if there's no reason to keep it, it you need to keep it for the unforeseen for some period of time. Some period of time. Okay, that's really the answer. Not forever, but you know, other, other people I have talked to in the industry that do similar work, some of their customers are keeping it indefinitely and not making that decision. So this is an it-depends decision. It depends on the culture. If you're a large organization where you have a lot more risk involved with staying in the cloud potentially... You're really going to try this. You're going to you're going to be living and breathing it for some period of time before you're willing to say, "I know 100%. I am never ever going back." Yeah, yeah. Which which is a time thing. You know, at some point, it's like, you know, boss. Three months has gone by. We have had no reason to have that on. I say we schedule the time to shut it down. Yeah, you can have that conversation at that point because you want yeah. the gear for your home lab. I get it. <laughs> I, I guess kind of a coffin nail question here. Mail flow, right? So if you have a hybrid environment, there's obviously server infrastructure on-prem and in the cloud. 
what does that look like from an internet perspective? You know, like if someone's sending me mail, where is it going? Are you asking when you're in hybrid mode? Like in if I have mailboxes that are still on-prem and some in the cloud? Correct, yeah. Okay. I got some on both. Yep. It doesn't look any different to the user. The hybrid configuration wizard actually helps you figure out what you need to do to make that happen and make sure that the routing is set up from an external DNS perspective. You need to make sure that that's all squared away. From a user experience perspective, it's not any different, but your message headers are going to look different because it will show that leap out to Office 365, even if I'm communicating from one internal user to another. Oh, because it's going to hit the O365 first and then potentially reroute it? It depends on where it initiated, right? So if I'm on-prem emailing you out in Office 365 because you're moved, it'll show that it made an external leap out to 365 and delivered to Okay, so I could have... I end up with multiple SMTP relays in the hybrid scenario, it sounds like, possibly. I mean, it sounds like I don't I can like have referring one... to them as relays. It really is about messaging transport. I guess the transport mm-hmm. would say, like, "Oh, you're looking for this user. It's in Office 365. Go talk over there, mm-hmm. or vice versa." There's always Correct. these road signs somewhere at the transport layer to help redirect the, the traffic flow. Gotcha. I mean, do my MX records change so that the outside world trying to send me mail to my domain does that get impacted in the hybrid? You'll have to make a decision at some point and decide where that routing is going to occur. You don't have to do it in the beginning. Your in, your external mail can still come in through your on-prem exchange till whichever point you decide. But obviously, at the point that you decide your your cloud or mostly cloud, there's going to be a like in that last twenty five percent of the migration. You are probably going to then make that decision and change your MX record and bring it in through that way. You're going to make a conscious decision to flip that MX record for when it makes sense for the traffic flow. Yeah, okay. Okay. As my mail is flowing through this hybrid system, I am worried about inspecting the mail, spam uh, filtering, and uh, and DLP, and, and these kind of things. Do I have to worry about mail routing or mail flow in some way to make sure that all the inspections that I want to be done are being done? Well, so that's a great question because you can rely on what you have in place for your on-prem for whatever period of time you choose. Like we said, maybe like the last 25% of the time, I might already have that system in place that I'm using over on that side. Now, at the point that you decide Office 365 is that right platform, you would then have to had either looked at some of the Microsoft options for scrubbing mail Or look at some other third-party options, which is actually what I would personally recommend. There are cloud-based options you can put right in front of Office 365 Cloud that will will do those inspections and spam Mm -hmm. detections and things for you. So that does influence the timing of your cutover as well. Got it. Okay. Okay. Well, we've just spent almost an hour talking about migrating Exchange to Office 365 with Teresa Miller. Teresa, how can people contact you, read your blog, follow you on Twitter, anything you'd like to share? Yeah, so my blog is at 24 by 7 IT Connection, and it's a number 2, number 4, X7 IT Connection. Got it. And I'm on Twitter at 24 by 7 IT Connect, or email me at Teresa.Miller at 24 by 7 IT Connection.com. And in all seriousness, you are available as a consultant for Absolutely. these kind of services. Absolutely. Yeah. Great. Well, Teresa, I hope people reach out to you. And that is it for today's edition of the Data Knots Podcast. You can find Ethan, that would be me, at EC Banks on Twitter or packetpushers.net, where I do most of my technical writing these days. You can digitally skyrate to Chris at Chris Wall on Twitter, and his blog is wallnetwork.com. 
For more of our Data Nut shows about infrastructure engineering, cannonball into the pool of free technical resources you can find in the deep end of packetpushers.net. You'll find the Data Nuts piloting episodes about Azure Stack, Hybrid Cloud, PowerShell, Storage Nerdery, Security Posturing, Career Architecture, AWS, and so much more. Until then, may your server lights blink, your inbox be zero, and your cables be cleanly managed. Framework, uh, um, initial setup, dynamic All distribution of those groups. Things. <laughs> <laughs>